Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 4, Episode 15 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. In this episode we looked at Julian Nagelsmann's managerial paradox, we looked at the heir to Malo Gusto's right back thrown at Leon. we looked at Espanyol's sense of melancholy, we looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. Now, in our previous episode, you might remember that we promised this time around a discussion with Alex and Nanad from the Everybody's Eats podcast, and we have delivered on that promise. So later in this episode, you can look forward to a discussion which lasts about 30 minutes or so, looking at some of the most exciting young talents in Lake Anne. As always, this episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops' subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit freelancefootballops.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, on now with the episode. Hopefully you're all staying safe. Hopefully you're all staying well. Thanks, as always, for your continued support. Enjoy. Well, Michael Jones is making his long-awaited Return to the five-a-side football pitch this evening, so we'll dial him in slightly later in this episode. Rudy Barlow will, however, be with us from the start. Rudy Barlow, how are you doing? How is Madrid treating you? Yeah, not too bad. It's uh, heating up. I can feel the uh, oven-like waves of warm air kind of coming at me. And uh, I'm not going to lie, t- today was uh, quite a struggle on my uh, sort of mid-afternoon writing. <laughs> it was really... Uh, yeah, it was it was hard work keeping myself focused and not just drifting off into what would have been a lovely siesta. But uh, but yeah, more to come on that front, more heat to come. Absolutely, Bow. I'm sure you'll be able to acclimatise from the eastern winds of Edinburgh to the humid summers of Madrid in, in no time at all. Okay, well, as we were saying earlier, Michael Jones won't join us until later, so we'll cover some Italian developments later in the podcast. But in the meantime, we are going to look at one of the biggest storylines this side of the new year uh, across the four leagues we predominantly cover. We're going to look at what's been happening at Bayern Munich, Barlow, aren't we? Yeah, I think there was a a collective kind of expression of uh, what or como or fast or whichever language you were doing it in. I think everyone kind of looked at their phone twice when they saw this news because during the international break, Bayern Munich did part company rather brutally with coach Julian Nagelsmann, swiftly replacing him with Thomas Tuchel. At the time of Nagelsmann's dismissal, Bayern found themselves in second place in the Bundesliga standings, one point behind leaders Payfal Bay with nine league games to play having also secured a Champions League quarter-final place. We deliberately decided to wait a few weeks to let the metaphorical dust settle and gather our thoughts on one of the juiciest storylines in European football right now, as you mentioned, Ali. So, looking back now, 
How might we explain the Bayern board's decision to sack Nagelsmann? And looking ahead, what can we expect from the Bavarian outfit under the guidance of Thomas Tuchel? Yeah, Barlow, I think with Julian Nagelsmann, we've seen the emergence of sorts of a managerial paradox, whereby he's too talented, too tactically innovative to settle for a club in that level below the very top, such as, say, an RB Leipzig. But he perhaps doesn't have the strength of personality to manage the dressing room, the egos, if you like, at an elite level club. And we saw it at Bayern where his relationships with key dressing room figures such as Thomas Muller and Manuel Neuer, for example, were often really quite strained. And every elite club will have those egos, those delicate pre-existing dressing room dynamics. Rightly or wrongly, it does also seem to be more difficult for coaches who haven't played at the very top or at least enjoyed a relatively fruitful playing career to win over a dressing room to command the respect of key players and get them to buy into what it is they are trying to do. Nagelsmann, of course, hung up his boots at the age of just 20 following a succession of injuries. And I do think that that has, at Bayern anyway, gone against him, even when we take into account his unquestionable ability as a manager. So to address your question in terms of why the board decided to sack Nagelsmann, as we see with managers at PSG and league and managers at Bayern need to win and win with style. Anything less than three points in a league game in particular for Bayern will always raise eyebrows, particularly post-World Cup. That was happening all too frequently. They dropped points on five occasions in the league after the World Cup and the defeat away to Leverkusen in March actually saw them slip to second in the table, as you say, Barlow and ultimately spelled the end for Nagelsmann. After that defeat, the divisive sporting director Hassan Salihamisic said, this is not what Bayern stands for, uh, quite dramatically. Alarmingly for the Bayern board, Dortmund had also gone from nine points behind to a point ahead of Bayern following the Bundesliga's post-winter break resumption. Explaining the club's subsequent decision to then part company with Nagelsmann, Oliver Kahn, the club's chief executive, said... When we signed Yoli Nagelsmann for Bayern in the summer of 2021, we were convinced we would work with him on a long-term basis. And that was the goal of all of us right up to the end. Yoli shares our inspiration to play successful, or rather our aspiration to play successful and attractive football. We came to the conclusion that the quality of our squad was less and less visible despite winning the league last season. After the World Cup, we were playing less successful and less attractive football and the ups and downs in our form put our season goals and beyond at risk. That is why we have acted now. So, yeah, he's, uh, yeah, no uncertain terms there from Khan or Sally Hamasic. Just thinking now about Nagelsmann's tactics, Barlow, there was a really good article on the DW website explaining where it went wrong for Nagelsmann, tactically speaking. Anyway, I would advise you go and have a look at that article in more detail, but over the last 10 years or so, we would typically tend to see Bayern set up in a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3 formation. They almost exclusively played with a back four. Nagelsmann, however, as we know, is a great admirer of a back three. And so at Bayern, what we saw was him trying to implement a hybrid back three slash back four, which we spoke about before on the podcast. And the team would generally start with a back four when they were out of possession, then move to a back three when they got the ball. So that seemed to so shall we say, maybe the, the faintest seeds of confusion throughout the team, which undermine the solidity and cohesion of 
the team as a whole. Um, so that confusion coupled with Nagelsmann's desire to have his side flood the final third with bodies left Bayern particularly vulnerable on the counter-attack with an undermanned backline perilously high up the pitch. It is a recipe for disaster no matter how good your defenders are. Um, arguably a recipe for disaster anyway. There was a well-founded feeling that Bayern under Nagelsmann Waterley, at least, were very much there to be got at. Um, that defensive frailty really came to the fore tangibly in the recent games against Leipzig, Frankfurt, Gladbach and Leverkusen. And there was this really quite rational fear, Barlow, that it would come to the fore as well against PSG when you think about the pace of Mbappe. But they managed to weather that particular storm, whether that was down to Nicholson getting it right on those occasions, which to an extent it was, but it was also down in part to the fact that PSG are... Yeah, not in the best of states themselves. Coming back to Nagelsmann, while the writing was perhaps not quite on the wall for him, when we unpack his final months in charge, when we consider the extent to which he had lost the goodwill, if he ever really had it, of key dressing room figures such as Miller and Neuer, I don't think we can actually be too surprised at the seemingly premature end to Nagelsmann's time in charge at the Allianz Arena. Looking ahead... Barlow, it did feel inevitable that Thomas Tuchel would coach Bayern Munich one day and that day has arrived. Uh, the marriage between the two is a potentially frightening one and provided Tuchel doesn't fall out with what is a very vocal board at Bayern and Tuchel not falling out with his bosses is, is a lot easier said than done based on his previous uh, posts. You, you can see Tuchel enjoying a lot of success in Bavaria both domestically and in Europe. In terms of what we can expect from Tuchel's Bayern, he noted in his first press conference that now is not the time for big changes or different systems. Some little adjustments, perhaps, but less is more. Um, and he then added that the immediate focus was on smelling the grass again, establishing trust and building anticipation. Now, the 4-2 win over Dortmund did provide us with a limited indication of what we can look forward to from Bayern under Tuchel. They set themselves up in a 4-1-4-1 formation, sitting back, rarely pressing high and hitting Dortmund on the break time and time again. It was a Bavarian flytrap, you might say, Barlow, and it seemed to work perfectly. That first game in charge was an admittedly small sample size, and I don't think we'll really start to see Tuchel's imprint on this Bayern team until next season. Just for completeness, I do think there's some value, at least, in taking a step back, as we like to do on the podcast, and considering... Tuchel's preferred systems with his three previous clubs. During his time at Dortmund, Tuchel switched between a 4-2-3-1, a 4-3-3 and a 3-4-3. At PSG, we saw him favour 4-3-3 or a sort of 4-2-2-2 designed to crowbar in as many attacking players as possible. And then most recently at Chelsea, of course, frequently deployed that 3-4-3 formation in which the wing-backs played such a significant role. There's a brilliant article actually in The Athletic exploring all of that in great detail, so do go and check that out. Just circling back to Nagelsmann briefly before wrapping up the first part of the episode, I'm quite keen to hear from you, Barlow, on one of his potential next destinations. There's been chat that he could one day take over the hot seat at Real Madrid. How do you think that one could perhaps play out, Barlow? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Just to give a bit of kind of backstory to the listeners here, this was back in kind of 2018. I think it was before Zidane came back and there was rumours that Nagelsmann would maybe head to Real Madrid and he was even younger then. He was just kind of in his early 30s. He's now, now 35, a bit more experience under his belt. He obviously has a big club under his belt, but 
there was rumours then and Nagelsmann turned him down said he wasn't ready and I tend to think that was a pretty wise decision and I'll be honest though I, I personally think he's probably still not ready for the Real Madrid job just yet I think with Nagelsmann there's very little doubt within the footballing community about his tactical nose about the way he sets up his teams about his his footballing brain on a on a very sort of um tactical basis and yeah just kind of working out where people should be and what the positions should be but in terms of you look at Real Madrid who won a double last season of the Champions League in La Liga from absolutely nowhere they were an aging side people thought that they were done in need of kind of a great renewal Kylian Mbappe did not arrive last summer as well and you look at the success that they've had and it's under Carlo Ancelotti who while not being the polar opposite of Nagelsmann, does have a certain sort of touch and a certain way of handling a squad that I wonder if Nagelsmann would be able to do so. Nagelsmann from the outside, and I say this without having watched him closely over the years, seems to be pretty idiosyncratic. He seems to be precise, very demanding, very much more Pep Guardiola or Tuchel style Dan Angelotti, who gives his players a little bit more freedom. He allows them to solve problems on the zone. He doesn't try and micromanage the team at all. And we've seen in the past managers that try to do that, particularly looking at you, Rafa Benitez, um, and, and even, you could say, Julian Lopetegui to a certain extent, managers that try to impose their sort of discipline and themselves above all the players. They tend not to work too well at at Real Madrid, it hasn't really been a route for success. You look at Zidane as well with all those Champions Leagues. He again tends to be a bit of that kind of looser, softer touch. And even if tactically people maybe aren't always impressed with Real Madrid these days or, or haven't been over the last kind of decade, even you could say, they do have that winning mentality. They allow those kind of veteran players to work out a way of getting the best out of them. And and so, yeah, I have to say, looking at Nagelsmann, I I think it's probably too soon for him. I'd like him to get more experience of dealing with a dressing room that, particularly at Real Madrid, is just so weighty. It's such a political club. And if you think that, I mean, Bayern Munich are probably one of the few clubs in the world that compare to Real Madrid in terms of how political it is, in terms of how many people you have to keep happy, and in terms of how difficult a dressing room it is to manage. So, yeah, I, if I were Real Madrid, I would be keeping Ancelotti over Nagelsmann, certainly. Yeah, I think I would echo what you're saying there, Barlow. I think the two just don't seem to me to be the most compatible, shall we say. I think the type of manager that works at Madrid, as you say, is not the type of manager that Joey Nagelsmann is. Nagelsmann's a great manager, but it all comes back to what we were saying at the outset of this part of the podcast, whereby Joey Nagelsmann seems to have developed this sort of managerial par- paradox. He's, he's almost too good for a Leipzig, but he's not got that strength of personality to manage the egos to manage the dressing room at an elite level club okay well it's definitely one to watch out for in terms of Yoli Nagelsmann's next steps you would think as one of football's great thinkers that Nagelsmann would take time away from the game that he would go and maybe explore some other methods speak to other people soak up some more knowledge yeah definitely a manager whose career still has plenty in store and one that we'll continue to observe from our yeah relative distance at the Road to Nowhere podcast. Okay, we are going to take a quick break. Now we're going to come back shortly to look at the latest goings-on in Spanish football. We'll be right back. 
Vinicius Junior, Karim Benzema and Luka Modric were all on the pitch at the Santiago Bernabeu on Easter weekend, but all of them were outshone by the technical brilliance of an opposition player. Via Real winger Sam, Samu Chiguese scored twice and was heavily involved in the third as Villarreal walked away with a famous 3-2 victory. The 23-year-old Chiguese feels like he has been around quite a while with obvious potential, but it looks as if he might now be taking the next step, Bartlow. Yeah, like like you say, he's been kind of always had that potential and it feels like he's been around for ages. I had to kind of like check his age and he's still pretty young and he's come through, he's always had that potential and uh, he's he's always had that in him to beat a player. He's had that pace, he's been able to jink inside and outside. He's really, really talented in those one-on-one situations. But in recent years, Unai Emery had used him as a substitute, basically. He used him more as an impact player. He kind of had him running in behind. And now I think about it a bit more, not actually kind of getting him on the ball, which is what Samu Chukwesi does very well. And it's almost curious that Emery, who's kind of a, so good at creating space for his attackers and making sure that they have the space to hit on the counter, didn't really get the best out of Chukwesi. But... He's taken a step forward under Kike Setien, who, who again, kind of working off that kind of paradigm, you think of Setien as more kind of a laborious style of play in terms of keeping possession, holding the ball longer, and it, and it tends to be a little bit more, well, certainly when it's going wrong still, but what Setien has, has done well is he's gotten the ball, he's gotten into situations where he can take on players, where he can beat them, he's gotten consistency, he's gotten playing kind of very regularly, and you look at his stats this season, he's got 24 goals and assists, just six of those were before Setien came in, 18 since. He's got 28.8% of all of his goals and assists in uh, his career this season. Uh, adds up to 13 goals and 11 assists is how that divides up. He's in the top 2% of successful dribbles for for his kind of position group and uh, top 6% for progressive carries. In La Liga, he's third for actions resulting in goals. And the two kind of above him and with him are Rodrigo and Vinicius Jr., which kind of tells you about kind of the quality run that he's on. Nine goals and assists in his last nine games as well. It's been a huge leap forward. I, I don't think we can just put it down to Setien. I think sometimes that we maybe over we want to see a change that's so decisive, but sometimes it's just having a bit more maturity, having that consistent run on the side and, and being comfortable and, and you make that kind of click. And and hopefully it is that quick for Samu Chukwete. I think that performance against Real Madrid made people sit up a lot. And even though he's been on a good run of form for Villarreal in the last few weeks, he's been kind of the difference between their season almost collapsing and still being in the top four race. They're just four points off their Sociedad with 10 games to go now. For the season that's been topsy-turvy, it's been up and down. Nobody, I don't think, really saw them making a run at the top four this season. In about kind of February, they went on a run of four games where they were beaten. We talked about them in the Conference League too. So yeah, it's it's an interesting one. And you look at that game against Real Madrid as well. It was It's hard not to draw some comparisons with Vinicius because similarly to a player that always had the beating of his man and always caused problems, but now he's kind of put it together and, and is creating his, that production. He's got that kind of goals and assists part to his game. That's that's really kind of been reflected, and at times it's almost like a back and forth between Vinicius and Chukwueze. One will get the ball and run at the other side, and then the other will will have a go. And uh, Chukwueze ultimately came out on top in a very good Villarreal performance. It has to be said, 
the there's it was natural who was up against natural for my money has been outside of Eder Militao, their best defender this season. He's been their best left back this season. Um, even if Camavinga is, is starting to make a claim to that to that spot. And he just gave him the run around. Natural couldn't get close to him. The first goal, it should be said, Chukwete kind of comes through the middle. Natural goes with him and he gives him a slip. He, he kind of dazzles him with footwork. Natural gets sat down on his arse and it really is kind of FIFA street stuff. And that wasn't even the goal that Kike Setien was talking about at the end of the game. It was the winner in the kind of dying moments of the game with about 10 minutes to go or so when he cuts in from the left and just flights it into the top corner. It really was like a picture book goal. And Setien said after the game, that is what fans buy their tickets for. That's what I, if I come to a football match, I buy my ticket I hope to see. And it really was a really impressive performance from, from Chukwete. It's got an 18 million release clause. Well, it drops down to 80 million this uh, summer, but contract out in 2024. So I do think that we'll probably see quite a bit of talk about him this summer. But but yeah, Chukwete is just really, really fun, exciting player. And if he has put his game together, if this is a more permanent step up to the next level, then we're looking at one of the most exciting and fun players in European football. And uh, and yeah, he gave very much of the runaround on Saturday. Fantastic game, a 3-2 win for Villarreal, and uh, it was one of the most fun games of the season, inspired by Chukwete and Vinicius. Yeah, captivating performance from Chukwese in that win. I thoroughly enjoyed the highlights of that win over Real Madrid. Brilliant stuff. Okay, well, while they might have fallen to defeat last weekend, Real Madrid did blow away Barcelona 4-0 in the Copa del Rey since we last spoke, which at the very least deserves a mention. Carlo Ancelotti said that he hadn't changed much, but two players stood out for you, even if Benzema and Vinicius got the goals. How did Real Madrid win that match and how does that inform their Champions League campaign, Paulo? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Jorge Lopez Tortilla, who I was speaking to for La Liga Lowdown, was saying that it really was kind of a momentous occasion for Real Madrid, who just, as much as sometimes they do have the beating of Barcelona, rarely tend to kind of run up the goals and, and win that heavily, especially at Camp Nou. That was their biggest win there since the 60s. It was the most goals they've scored there since the 60s as well. Um, and so you really got a sense of occasion for the Real Madrid fans of just how important that was. The two players that stood out for me, firstly, Eduardo Camavinga just completely kind of took out one side of their attack and and Rafinha couldn't get a kick against him. Ferran Torres was ineffective as well. Um, and, and just every time he got into a battle, I think even though if you are going to play him at fullback, you, you have a decision to make because his positioning is not quite perfect he still has errors there and and I'd say it'd be a risk for the Champions League campaign to put him in there especially when the tie is equal but in this game where Rafinha faced him up time and time again I think it was six or seven dribbles he had at him Camavinga I think there's only one time he got past him and it was it was a pretty ineffective dribble as it was but Camavinga has just come on leaps and bounds to the point where now it's almost unthinkable that Carlo Ancelotti wouldn't select him in the starting lineup for these Champions League games which if we hark back to the start of the season, that's really quite a quite a step because he was still getting hooked at kind of half time or after 50, 60 minutes in games when for his indiscipline he just wasn't quite there in those big matches and he he didn't quite appreciate positionally where he could be. But now he's such an such a force in nature and such a a technically talented player that kind of 
he masters the tackles. He he he's capable when he gets that ball off the opposition to to really set Real Madrid in motion. That yeah, he he's a part of this team that's crucial now. And then you look at the the flip side of that and Rodrigo up the other side of the pitch on the right wing. Now Ancelotti said he didn't take change too much, but he moved Valverde into the middle. He started Rodrigo. And you see in the opening two goals that Rodrigo is the key decisive factor in this match because the first one, Marcos Alonso goes after the ball. He tries to shut shut the ball down. Rodrigo beats him. He's more agile to it. He he touches it past him, drives up the pitch, and then slots it left to, to Vinicius. And Vinicius and Benzema do the rest between them. But that goal doesn't happen without Rodrigo on the park because quite simply, Marcos Alonso would have got to the ball well, perhaps not first, but I don't believe in Valverde's touch to get round him as effectively as he did and set that attack in motion. And then you look at the second one as well, and uh, it comes down the right side just after half time. Game is still in the balance. It's still level on the scoreline, and Real Madrid are starting to to uh, sort of make hay against the Barcelona defence, but it comes down the right. Modric gets into space, and, and he drives at the defence, and he cuts it back to Benzema, and Benzema's almost alone at the edge of the box. But the reason he has so much space and it is almost bizarre to find Real Madrid's best finisher in that position with so much space and time. But it's because Rodrigo has come off his wing, he's in the middle, and then he drags Kunde away from Benzema, opens up that space. And I don't think with Rodrigo not in the sides, perhaps they do want to win it. But I I think that was the difference. And then on the if we if you want to play devil's advocate as well, though, just before that. Barcelona almost score. It's a miraculous save from Thibaut Courtois. And the reason that that happens, where that comes from, is the Alejandro Balde is coming down that left-hand side like a train. He he whips the ball in and, and Barcelona get a really good chance from it, nearly score. And if that goes in, the tie probably goes the other way because it's 2-0. And what you saw is that against Real Madrid in that first half, Barcelona were probably the better side. A big part of that was Balde on the left-hand side. And without Valverde on that right-hand side, you saw that Balde was able to get a lot more joy and he, he was a lot more free against Rodrigo, who just, quite frankly, isn't able to to attack as much. And possibly Ancelotti says, stay forward a bit more, don't go with Balde all of the time. But overall, that was the difference. And if, if Barcelona convert that chance, it's a different game. And, and everyone will be talking about how Rodrigo was the wrong selection. But as it was, it, it was the right selection for Ancelotti. And, uh, and yeah, a Barcelona time side that was... Bit limited, I think, missing missing four of their starters, four of their key players in Petri, Dembélé, De Jong and Christensen. I think there was an acknowledgement that if they were to go to behind, even though they did kind of come back in El Clasico in the league, it's just not a side that's built to chase leads, uh, chase the game. And and I think there was almost, uh, I mean, Sergio Roberto talks about the morale going down after they conceded that first goal. And I think you could really see in the players that they knew they didn't have the quality to turn that game around after they went down, and certainly not after 2-0 down. Indeed, Balo. Now, finally, two seasons ago, Diego Martinez set the world alight as he blazed through to the Europa League quarterfinals with Granada in their first European campaign. Regarded as one of the most highly rated managers in Spain, there was plenty of optimism when he took over a nifty Espanyol squad. And yet, three quarters of the season in, Espanyol are in the relegation zone and Martinez is out of a job. It's hard to argue against that decision given the results, but why do you feel that this is such a controversial decision, Barlow? 
Yeah, it's really curious. And I have to say, I think there's a sense of, of melancholy somewhat in this Espanol side and around the club now because he almost looked like they're kind of tickets to making that next step and getting a bit of consistency. Um, I mean, they had the RGT fight. We've talked about that in the past. We talked about Hossele last week and just how good he's been for Espanol, kind of keeping them afloat. But the thing is, he's, he still had the backing of the team. And I think he was sacked just one match day after the international break. I think there was a, a sense that the board wanted to get rid of him or, or the sporting director certainly did. But perhaps the team were still behind him and fought for him. And even though they were kind of, in many ways, pretty awful, to be perfectly honest, they just, they, they were still kind of given something for them and they're still reacting to going down. But no team has conceded first more times in La Liga than Espanyol. It's 12 times they've matched just three draws when they've gone behind nine defeats. They're 19th, the fourth worst defence in the league. Outside of Elche, they've won the least games in the league as well. Just six this season and Elche are basically a, a non-factor these days. We, we kind of take them out of the comparisons because they've been so poor. But uh, but yeah, they've just been so fragile defensively that it, it's really almost hard to explain because if there's one thing that you used to talk about Granada with was that perhaps they didn't have the greatest defence, perhaps they didn't have the greatest forward line, but where they did have something was their kind of mental grit, their ability to come through adversity, their ability to really kind of manage games well and, and stay in them if they went down. And you saw a little bit of that against this for Espanyol, but also to kind of... Yeah, just get through games and have that kind of managing of momentum that we praise the likes of Real Madrid so much for. And and that's eventually why they got through to the quarterfinals of the Europa League. But we talked about that fragility, the lack of concentration, the boneheaded errors, the fact that none of their fullbacks seems really capable of kind of shutting down the opposition wingers or forwards. There is... The, the person that's meant to be the leader of that defence is Leandro Cabrera, who's kind of a, a hard-nosed Uruguayan. But when your leader, when you're in theoretical defensive captain is is kind of making those kind of really slack mistakes, he's giving away the ball in silly situations, it's hard for them to impose that discipline. And then in midfield as well, they're, they're so talented as well in some senses because they've got Sergi Dardaire, who's one of the best midfielders in the league. But if you're playing in them just a two... And and Vinny Souza, who, who we talked about a wee bit as well, he's a big physical guy, he covers the ground well, but the two of them together tended to get overrun at various times. And ultimately, it's those mistakes that cost them. And I think the fact that they brought in Luis Garcia Fernandez, who used to captain them, played for them for a long time, but he's come in from Real Madrid C or RSC International, as they're currently called. Even if that might be the answer to the relegation battle. Even if they do stay up, they're back to zero again because Luis Garcia is an, an experienced manager. Perhaps he becomes their Pep Guardiola, but they've had 13 or 14 managers since Diego Simeone came to Atletico Madrid about a decade ago, um, just over now. And you wonder, with a talented squad, and they've been talented for quite some time now, when are they next going to get a manager of Martinez's quality? Because I think we all thought that that was a bit of a reach and that he could have gone to somebody already in Europe. And now, now that Martinez is gone, when are they going to get somebody that's going to drag them towards that again? And it, it really is. You never know in football. You never know if something just clicks. Mm. But, but ultimately, yeah, I think there's an air of melancholy, an air of a failed project. 
And now that Martinez is gone, the whole kind of direction of the club, the whole kind of uh, yeah project, as I was kind of saying, is, is in question at Espanyol again, beyond their immediate relegation worries, of course. Absolutely, Barlow, a sort of drawn-out sliding doors moment, you might say, for Espanyol. Okay, that was fascinating as always. We're going to draw our analysis of Spanish football to a close there. We're going to speak to Michael Jones next. We'll be right back. Well, the final whistle has just gone at the San Siro. AC Milan have prevailed over Napoli. It's finished 1-0. Now, it's safe to say, Michael, that the mood going into this tie had greatly changed over the past fortnight following AC Milan's scarcely believable 4-0 pouncing of Napoli in the league. Now, whilst this match in the Champions League, of course, wasn't quite as dramatic in terms of the final scoreline, Milan did still quite clearly have Napoli's number. Now, ahead of the final instalment of this season's trilogy between the two Italian giants, do Napoli have what it takes to find their Hollywood ending, Michael? Yeah, I think all the evidence that we've seen of Napoli this season, that they, they definitely still have it in them. And I think they've certainly made it a lot harder for themselves. They were unfortunate with the injury, Victor Simeon, which kind of dominated both the pre-match coverage for this game and that league game and their sort of form without him. And that's certainly a big question mark and whether he'll be fit for the second leg is going to be an interesting one. But not just that, they caused their own problems. Zambo Anguisa, he got a second yellow card sent off. A questionable second yellow card during the game within four minutes, but he's a really important player for them. And then um, Kim and Jay also getting suspended, I think, picking up a yellow card was a bigger blow. But the resilience they showed with the 10 men and the creativity and the substitutions by Luciano Spalletti late on in the game, I think has given them hope. But I think a few months ago, like you said, you know, you talk about the narrative going into such games. When this draw was made, it was almost seen to some that Napoli would have this really clear, simplistic route to the Champions League final and arguably to go on and win it, going by the season they'd had. They'd blown expectations. They'd dominated a Champions League group stage, which featured what was meant to be a tough group with the likes of Liverpool and Ajax, and they made them look mediocre at best, in fact, a lot worse, I think. And that's just not the Napoli that we've seen in the past two games with AC Milan. But they did make a good start. I thought they looked really sharp for their sort of first 15, 20 minutes. Elmas, who came in as sort of a false nine, initially had that sort of centre-forward burst that you get with a player sometimes. He's kind of thrust into the scenario of a big game. But I think when the reality of that, you know, lack of practice of that front three as an attacking formula didn't quite work. And once AC Milan had a really devastating counter-attack here, the on through Rafa Leao, who was brilliant in both the games. He scored two in the league game and he was at the heart of most of the good things they did tonight, especially getting his team up the pitch. He's such an amazing ball carrier. But he probably should have scored early on. But as soon as that happened, before that, you kind of... If you're watching the game, not knowing too much of the context, you may have been surprised to think that Napoli lost to this team 4-0. But as soon as that happened, the signs became more obvious. And, you know, Brahim Diaz turned 
the Napoli midfield straight away. He ran at them and they did defend slightly differently to the way they had approached the first game. They tried to defend more aggressively, albeit narrow, which is a way that Spalletti likes to do it. But it still ended up with Ismail Benesser firing home at the near post. Questions over Alex Murray may be a bit unfair as to whether he could have saved it. But I think this was a game not actually defined by the team's centre-forwards in the likes of Giroud and Simeon's absence and Elmas in place. But I think it was a game defined by the two goalkeepers mm. for each team. I think Mike Mignan, who is, in my opinion, one of the best goalkeepers, if not in the conversation for the best goalkeeper in the world at the moment, I think he's had a truly sensational three seasons, you know, both in France and in Italy. And his stock just seems to be getting higher. And he made such an important save. I think it was from Giovanni Di Lorenzo. He made he made a number of key saves, but he was also such a calm and influence. And I think in that first half where Napoli started to look nervous was often when they went back to Marais. And his distribution just with the signs of a goalkeeper who just didn't have that confidence. And, you know, AC Milan could have doubled their league going into half. Antonali had a good chance, a nice opening just before the corner which led to Simon Kier somehow not scoring from a bullet header from point-blank range. And, you know, I think Napoli were caught, kind of caught between a few minds, and I think there were the real signs of that 4-0 trance. And like you said, I think one of the things maybe they should have done earlier, which they definitely should have done for that first goal, given the space between the midfield and the attack, was look to pick up on a tactical foul on Brahim Diaz and tried to get him down. But the midfield was all so tight to him and all in the same line across the pitch that once he got through them, it was very hard to even get near and create a foul. And I think because of those yellow cards that were being discussed and the potential suspensions they could have had going into that second leg, they were reluctant to make those tactical fouls early on. And when they actually did that in the second half, and I think they were a much better team for most of the second half, Napoli, these did seem to deal with a lot of AC Milan's um, turnovers, a lot of their counter-attacks, and I think they sort of handled it quite well. But at that point, the game had got quite fiery, as you would expect between two Italian teams facing off in the quarterfinal of the Champions League, something that's, you know, not been there to be seen in the last 10 years or so, I think even longer. And I think once that happened, then the yellow cards did start coming in. The referee was happily brandishing them at that point. I think... Andre Frank Zambongita was an unfortunate recipient of that second one. But I think when you put your foot at that height with a player going in that direction, I think there's always a risk. And he might be slightly unlucky, but I wouldn't say he's deeply unfortunate to be missing that second game. And yeah, I think there's it's going to be a really interesting one to see how it goes. I mean, I, I think AC Milan certainly go into the like the second leg as second favourites. I think they have Napoli's number for the time being. I think a Simeon can make a massive difference towards that because we saw AC Milan doubling up in the first half and Cavara Scalia. I don't think they'll have that luxury. Davide Calabria had a brilliant game, but he did also have fantastic support from who was in front of him, whether it was Benacer or Krunic, who was kind of deployed sometimes in a more sort of deeper utility role, a bit of a Pachi Sung role. Um, that we used to see Alex Ferguson you love to deploy in those big matches, one of them obviously most famously against Stacey Milan and Andrea Pirlo. But yeah, I think it it's a game that Napoli, you know, they've done so much good work this season. And I think that there's this narrative maybe going into them now that maybe they're going to struggle to get to the end. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that they're going to win the Serie A, which is a sensational achievement in itself. But 
they I think they just have to come together and sort of think about all the good things they've done this season. I think they've got to have a clear plan to deal with AC Milan on the counter-attack. But I think they do have a game plan that can work against them. And I think it's just set up for a truly exciting second leg. It was only 1-0, but it obviously could have been more Manyam with some brilliant saves and AC Milan with some very good chances of their own. In fact, maybe the better clear-cut chances. But... Yeah, I know you watched parts of the game as well, Ali, and I was just thinking, you know, who do you think's kind of going into this one a bit stronger? Yeah, I think it's it's delicately poised, but just what you want going into the second leg of a of a knockout game. I think what I enjoyed, I mean, I watched as well the domestic game, the 4-0 win for Milan. I think post-Rome trip for me, I've taken more of an interest in, in Italian football, shall we say. So, and I think there were two very different games, but I think tonight in particular was for the neutral, like me. It was it was a brilliant watch. You had Rafa Leal on the one side, you had Kvaret Scalia on the other side. And yeah, those, those were the two types of players that really kind of get the fans off their seats, give the neutral observer something to get excited about. And, and I think certainly, well, at least in terms of the scoreline, but over and above the scoreline, I think Rafa Leal came out on top when he was able to stretch his legs, when he was able to get past the Napoli defence. He looked really dangerous. There was a big chance I think he had in the first half. Probably should have scored it, but again, it comes from his own industry, his own determination, his own running. And then he obviously provides the assist for the goal, the decisive goal. And just on the goal, I know that you mentioned Murray and there was chat from the commentators and the co-commentators about how he'll be kicking himself with that. But that, that, that sort of observation really does frustrate me as a dedicated signed up member of the goalkeepers union you have to say what on earth was the defense doing it's like when i'm playing fives on a monday night and there'll be a shot that comes in and perhaps i could do better with it but the the defense have stood off the man they've not marked a man who's run through they've not followed a run let's just blame the defenders first and foremost marie had absolutely no chance i don't think i know that you said maybe Manon saves it i don't think most goalkeepers would save that to be honest it's well hit with power he's hitting the shot from not quite point-blank range, but he's only, what, 10 yards out. No goalkeeper can really be expected to save that. Yes, he maybe could have moved his feet a bit quicker, but let's ask questions of the defence. Let's say to them, do your job first uh, before we start blaming the goalkeeper. But but having having got that rant out of the way, Michael, what I will say is it was, a, it was a really interesting game of football. The referee threatened to spoil it with some really poor officiating, and I don't like to make the focus referees. We don't focus on referees at all <clears throat> on this podcast. But I do think he he almost ruined what was an otherwise brilliant game. That said, still really looking forward to the second leg. We've got the prospect, potentially, of a Milan derby in the semi-final, which would be quite something. And yeah, we've got uh, yeah a real chance to see, well, if not Napoli, then Milan progress. And I think it's going to be a, a spectacular second leg. Definitely uh, the, the second leg for which I'm, I'm the most uh, excited, shall we say, Michael. Okay. Another Italian team still in Europe is Fiorentina, whose continental success this season had often been a source of inspiration in an otherwise underwhelming campaign that had seen Laviola sit in the bottom half of the table. However, the highly intriguing Vincenzo Italiano had turned it around with an almost record-breaking nine-match winning run that would have seen them break a club record had Spezia not held them to a draw on the weekend. With one foot in the Coppa Italia final, how should we assess Fiorentina's season? And I suppose, why did the Tuscany side start this campaign so sluggishly? 
Yeah, well, for short-termism, I think if Fiorentina get to the final, if they progress, I mean, they will have had their first game against Lech Poznan um, by the time this podcast goes out on Friday. But going off that league form and going off that cup form of late and the, the cup form's been good throughout the season, I think it will could be a real season to remember for Laviola. Like you said, Ali, they, they certainly did make a sluggish start. I think they went eight games winless, including a draw versus Latvian side, FK Rigas, um, early on. And they did actually recover before the World Cup break and a five-game winning run took them towards mid-table. They were actually sort of flirting with relegation in the early part of the season, but the teams below them, unfortunately for Fiorentina, were significantly worse. And then they, I guess they went into the off-season with a similar optimism that they went into the new season with. You know, they lost Dusan Vlajovic in the January of 2022, but they still recovered and rallied quite well to consolidate a seventh-place finish above Atalanta, which was a real achievement for Fiorentina side that had been languishing around mid-table prior to the arrival of Italiano. But, yeah, sort of with the turn of the year, they had an OK start, similar to how they actually started the season. I think they, they won the first two games of the season and they got four points out of six from the first two games after the World Cup break. But then they went on a, a six-game run where they only won won one of the games and I think there was that very ill familiar feeling around Florence that they were about to embark on quite a dreary um, bit of a cop out end to the season but yeah that European form inspired the turnaround they did a sensational double over Braga where I don't think many people actually expected them to even get through in the first round of the knockouts they beat them 4-0 at home and then won 3-2 in Portugal and they've not looked back since the and I think you know some of those players who have been key to the European form in the likes of Luki Jovic and Nikola Milankovic, the latter has been a key part to the club club for many years, haven't actually been that utilized in the league of late. They've had their moments, they've come on in matches, but two players who are kind of seen as integral for the continuity of this club in the post Vlajovic even era, you know, Jovic was signed exactly for that on a permanent deal from Real Madrid in the summer, and he's not hit the heights. And I think one of the things is quite clear from those runner forms, both before and after the World Cup, is that Italiano certainly takes a little bit of time to figure out his best team, and he certainly takes a little bit of time with the sort of level of possession that often averaging around 55-60% possession in matches, to um, you know, get that fluidity in terms of their passing, their movement, and you know, scoring goals in the final third, and their sort of average goal per game in the season is just over one. Whereas if you look in this recent nine-game winning run, it's over two. So that really goes to show that there is that. But I think whereas previously in the first season where they may have had success with Vlaovic, who was able to sort of score in those early parts whilst they were still finding their feet at times, and by the time he left, it was such a well-oiled machine that they were able to continue I think it's just been a bit more difficult and I don't think Luka Jovic you know I think I expected him to be fantastic this season for them I thought Serie A was so well suited for him and I thought that Italiano's teams are just well suited to any striker it's just not quite happened for him in the league and you know Milankovic is a really interesting case as well I think he was expected to kick on from a great season last season he'd been a key player for a number of years Fiorentina quite you know, sadly, his sort of 
rise to prominence in Fiorentina was when Davide Astori passed away and Stefano Pioli, obviously now the AC Milan manager, put Milan, gave Milankovic that faith to be a regular first-team starter. And he hadn't really looked back. And this has been one of his biggest challenges. He signed a four-year extension in the summer when Inter Milan and Juventus were interested. And he's actually just not been able, you know, due to a number of errors, he's particularly poor on a two on defeat to Bologna in January. He's just not been able to hold his place in the team. But in step, in have stepped the likes of Lucas Martinez Quarter and Igor, two quite young South American defenders. Quarter's uh, 26, I think, Igor's 25. And they have been outstanding during this run. You know, Igor is an interesting case. He's a product of the Red Bull Academy, both with Red Bull Brazil and then Red Bull Salzburg. He didn't really establish himself at all at Salzburg, only played a handful of games. And they ended up signing him on a two-year loan from Spal. But his success as sort of a deputy centre-back made him a permanent fixture. But he's established himself ahead of Milankovic this season. And Martinez Corto is a in his third and best season since arriving from River Plate, where he was a deputy captain in a team that featured the likes of Julian Alvarez, Santos, Rafael Santos Borra, Nico De La Cruz, and also Enzo Perez. And it just kind of gave a testament to his leadership. And that's been really important for them during this recent run. And that kind of South American influence has also been key with Arthur Cabral, who was signed right after Vlaovic's departure. And he scored seven goals during this run, I think only four in the league. But he's established himself ahead of Luki Jovic. So this team that's, you know, been quite synonymous with a heavy sort of Serbian Balkan influence in their team over the last few years, over a long time, really, if you go back all the way to sort of Stefan Jovic and the role he played um, for Fiorentina just over a decade ago, there's now this real sort of South American influence in the team. And that's been really important for them. There's also been a tactical switch to a 4-2-3-1, Antonin Barak, has gone in the former Elas Verona play we spoke about Zakan Matteo Zakani last time. Those two were worked together brilliantly through some of Elas Verona's better seasons. And Anthony Barak has he's dropped in as a number 10 now. And I think that's helped both Cabral and Lukovic, who, you know, off the bench and in Europe is finding his feet a little bit more for the club. And, you know, I think overall there's this kind of we, we go back to the kind of the number of signings Fiorentina have made. I think they're a team in a bit of an awkward position when they do attract very good players, you know, partially due to the location, the history of the club, but also that they are on the periphery of challenging for Europe. But, they, you know, players can get pickpocketed from them relatively easily compared to other clubs in Italy and also from clubs in Italy. You know, there's certainly a bit of a pecking order there in terms of, you know, where they stand for retaining a player. But... I think, you know, what they will be certainly hoping going into this summer and the signs are there with the likes of Artur, some really good young players going into next season who are developing momentum. And if there is cup success, that's only going to fuel that for Fiorentina. But you just feel like Italiano is finally starting to work out his best team. Jonathan Iconi has also really started to break through after quite a prolonged period after joining over a year ago. And I think what he will want is just as minimal disruption during the winter during the summer transfer window, Sofian Amrabat, you know, crazy that we've not mentioned him after the World Cup here. Then he has been important for Fiorentina this season. He's very likely to go. But, you know, other than him, there is the realistic prospect they hold on to most of their squad this summer and hope to build on it. And, you know, they have a really good campaign now. There should be plenty of reason to stay. Obviously, they win the Conference League, they go into the Europa League. So it's a really exciting time for Fiorentina. And, 
I think out of all the teams in Europe this season, they are the one who I do want to succeed most. You know, this Conference League seems to have a nice affinity with Italian teams and long may it continue. Indeed, Michael, it would be quite the romantic story where Fiorentina to lift the Conference League trophy. Is it a trophy or a vase? What is it that they, that they <laughs> throw up in the air? I can't even think. I might be saying. compared to the FA Vars trophy at this rate, isn't I it? Do, but... I, I mean, no disrespect to the Conference League. I'm a big fan of it. I think it's it's a great competition. So I say that only out of ignorance and not out of <laughs> disrespect. But yes, uh, good luck to Fiorentina in the Conference League. Okay, we are going to draw our analysis of Italian football to a close there. We're going to join Nanad and Alex for a chat on all things League and and specifically on all things promising young players in League and We'll be right back. Now, in France, Ligue 1 has marketed itself quite extensively as the League of Talents. The proof, as they say, is in the pudding, or in this instance, a series of insightful tweets from our good friends at Scouted Football. Last month, Scouted, of course, tweeted that players born in 2004 or later have played over twice as many minutes in France's top flight than in any other top five league this season. To run the rule over the youngsters with the most league and minutes under their belt this season, I'm delighted to be joined by good friends of the podcast, Alex and Nanad from the excellent Everybody's Eats League and podcast. Now we're going to get straight into this and we're going to start with Sael Kumbedi, who is nominally a right back at Leon, born 26th March 2005, so he's 18 years of age. Alex, I'm going to come to you first uh, on on Kumbedi's playing style and his potential and just on your thoughts on him generally. Uh, yeah, so Kumbedi is actually a personal favourite of mine, not only because he's now at Lyon. Uh, I actually was a big fan of his, watching him at the under-17 Euros last year. At the time he was with La Havre, was making a couple of appearances there and um, in this past summer window, we... Knowing that Malugusto is coming to the end of his time here, despite only being 19 himself, we decided to get Kumbedi early. And already now, with Gusto's early injury and, you know, signing for Chelsea in January, he's kind of come in and taken on the mantle of being our first choice right back. And I probably will be doing that for the rest of the season, albeit maybe in more of a right wing back role than the right back role we bought for him. We brought him in for Um to describe him as a player, I think I'm going to use a kind of compare him to Gusto. Gusto is often really seen as the that modern archetype of, you know, the modern right back who's almost like a midfielder. He himself coming through as a 10 um, through Lyon's academy and a midfielder before moving out to the right. Kumbedi is a bit more traditional in that, than that. Um, sort of how I would compare him as I heard someone speak about him as kind of having like qualities of Chilwell in the way he like moves up and down the flank. And I definitely do see that. The same time, Kumbedi as a player is very malleable, strong athlete, got a very wiry, quick sort of frame about him. Um, very good technically and also very intelligent player. I'm going to get in all, into all those different parts as we go forward. So he's a very malleable profile, I think. And I can both see him developing. He's only 18, like you said, just turned 18 a month ago. Um, less than a month ago, I can see him developing as someone who does become this overlapping traditional um, 
you know, what I like to call two-way right back in terms of offering lots of threat going forward, also being really good defensively, covering that flank, really dominating one side of the pitch. Um, at the same time, he, we have seen him invert a lot, kind of play a little bit more of that modern possession-based fullback role already. Um, and he's quite comfortable on the ball in those slightly narrower areas. So he's an interesting profile to see where he develops. What I would say his best qualities are is, despite the athleticism and the technique, he's got some really good technical attributes to him. I'm actually most impressed with his reading of the game, particularly his movement. I think his interpretation of space is by far the thing that's most exciting about Kumbedi and what makes him so good going forward. Times his runs really well, understands where the ball's going to move, where he wants to be arriving onto the ball, and it's kind of what's made his attacking threat so good. I actually don't think if we compare him to Gusto, he has nearly the same level of creative passing from deeper areas or technical execution on the cross. But what he does have is he has great timing, great um, ability to kind of understand where to arrive and when to arrive. And it makes him very, very good in terms of those ground crosses or those cutbacks where he's got a couple of assists already this season. Beyond that, very good dribbler. Um, helps with his explosiveness. Uh, another thing, he can get really good cut cutbacks from those situations. Um, and then also defensively, I think he's quite he's quite a strong one v one player, and will be will get better as he goes on. Um, I think he's also very good once he wins the ball. He's very good at protecting the ball, drawing a foul or moving away. I think he's better if I had to compare him again to Malogus to something Malo probably struggled with still as a young player is being able to shield and be responsible in, in those deeper areas. I think Gusto shows a lot more to that side of his game, despite being a year younger. Um, and it's something that'll grow forward. He's still maybe a bit over eager at times, which does cost us. And he's not positionally as disciplined as he should be yet, but he's a very intelligent player. It's not something that I'm worried about long-term. And I think it's, it's going to come through really well. The last thing I'd say about him, is and what maybe impresses me the most is his mentality he's someone who does make mistakes because he's always trying to impact the game he's not he's not subtle i'd say he he's always trying to impact the game and he does make mistakes being what 17 years old for most of the season so far but he's one of those players who makes the mistakes it doesn't you see it doesn't impact him at all and he he's going again he's immediately going and i think that's a very promising um yeah a very promising thing to have in a player so young making this step up, replacing, you know, a fan favorite in, in Malogusuk, having come through the academy. Uh, in terms of ceilings and flaws, he's still a player I'm trying to work up, maybe partly because of how malleable his profile is, that you don't really know what's the best route in terms of specializing him and developing him. But I would say I think he has a higher floor than Malogusuk, maybe a lower ceiling, but definitely already a top sort of fullback that... They'll be very useful, I think, at a Champions League level. Absolutely, yeah. It's quite handy for Leon to have a ready-made successor for Maro Gusto. Okay, turning our attention now to Ren. We're going to look at a couple of their players. Firstly, we're going to look at Leslie Ugachukwu. He's a defensive midfielder by trade, born 26th of March 2004. He's 19 years of age. Alex, what can you tell us about Ugachukwu? Yeah, so of course, um, one of the many recent graduates of Rennes, I think we're looking at Lyon, obviously, Kumbedi's not a graduate there, but so many 
good young players coming through at the moment. Those two clubs, it was, it was a pleasure watching them at the weekend. Uh, even more so because Lyon won three one. But anyways, to get onto to get onto Uguchuku himself, he's a nineteen year old midfielder. Um, he did play quite a bit for them last season in terms of appearances, but it was generally just junk minutes off the bench. I think this has really been his breakthrough season now, especially recently. He started nailing himself down as a starter. Um, so in terms of covering a stylistic profile, I'd say he's one of those six, eight hybrid types, um, languid type of player, especially you see all these like these languid French midfielders coming through. He's very much still in that Kefren Theoram, even Pogba mold in terms of the shades of how he plays that languid style that he has, those long legs. He, st- he stands at about 191 centimeters tall. So that's sort of the idea you can get for him. Where I see Ugo Chukwu is right now, I said he's a 6'8". I think he is one of those players that can become a really good top-level 6 that possession-based teams, the top ones are looking for at the moment that seem to be in short supply. There are a prop, a couple problems or things that he needs to sort out in his game. So maybe I'll go through his profile. Firstly, let's start with what he does on the ball. I think he's very, very good on the ball. He's a very talented passer in terms of timing, weight, selection, variety. He's got all of that. He's one one of the reasons that I think he can come through as a really good top level six is he also doesn't really try to force play too much. He's comfortable to play those small metronomic plays before, you know, then having that eye for that eye catching through ball or uh, or switch across to out to the winger, which is nice. He understands when to play which passes, which I really like. At the same time, also a very, very good carrier, which you probably get from the the Pogba and Thuram comparisons. Um, he has those long strides that just allow him to eat up ground very, very quickly. Um, now getting a bit more maybe into his defensive aspect of his game, which I think is very important. And it's the sort of, from what I understand, people do see him as this defensive midfielder. He still has a lot to improve there. First of all, defensive positioning. Um, or maybe I'll take it actually back. One of the things I still think he needs to improve on in possession, if not on the ball, is his positioning in possession. Sometimes he hides a bit too much, not even necessarily consciously hiding, but doesn't really know when to make sure that he's available um, for the pass for his fellow teammates. So that's one thing he can improve. I think that positioning aspect is also something he needs to improve on defensively. Um, I actually rate him quite highly as a reader of the game, but he often finds himself in bad starting positions to read, which negates that ability to understand where the ball's going to go if you're not positioned well to respond to that. Um, but yeah, speaking a bit about his reading of play, I think that is one of the greatest strengths and why I do have quite high hopes for him going forward as a defensive-minded player because there's this calmness about Ukuchuku that is both a huge asset and maybe something that he still needs to... It's like a double-edged sword that also kind of lets him down at times. There's that calmness. He reads play really well. He's very good in 1v1 deals. So that means, especially when he's squaring up with an attacker, a game against Messi actually comes to mind. He's very calm, reading the situation, doesn't fall for body feints, always watching the ball and able to react using those long legs to kind of cover up, you know, an almost octopus-like sweep up the ball. But at the same time, there is this lack of intensity in his play, which I think recently, as someone who's been watching a lot of especially deeper lying footballers, there's a big appreciation, uh, deeper lying midfielders, have a big appreciation for like compactness of, of midfielders nowadays and that's something Ugochukwu does lack and does let him down especially responding to situations he's not intense or alert enough 
to get into position doesn't necessarily know where the position should be and I think that does let him down it does make him a bit a bit loose overall and easy to kind of bypass but when he's in those situations where he's 1v1 a player he is pretty good um so yeah there there's a very interesting profile there I think the ceiling on Uguchuku is crazy high to be honest if he can sort out some of the the defensive frailties I think often we see these sort of 6-8 hybrids and in the end they're much more of an eight than they are a six. I think Ugochuku has that frame of those top eights and that ability to read the game that I think makes him a good six. And read the game not only out of possession, but also knowing what to do in possession. But there are there are still a, a lot of things that needs to develop in this game. And I don't know, maybe the space for this on the pod, but I think as soon as we can get him under a coach who really does understand in possession structures and can actually coach that sort of tactical discipline into him, um, will be very important. I still think he needs one or two more years at Ren before you look at all the big clubs that are kind of sniffing around at the moment. But yeah, that al- just pure experience alongside actually having a coach that I think will instill that tactical discipline into him, then we've got a very, very good player there. Absolutely. Turning our attention now to one of Ugochukwu's teammates, Desiree Dewey. He's an attacking midfielder at Ren, born... 3rd June 2005, a 17-year-old attacking midfielder. Nanad, what can you tell us about Desiree Dewey? Well, I can tell you that I share my birthday month with him. I was born three days uh, after in 1998. But to talk more about Desiree Dewey himself, a very, uh, very rounded attacking midfielder, already for his age of just 18, showing signs that he can belong in a very elite, elite side, uh, just because of how how he offers his qualities, not just in possession, but out of possession as well. And normally you don't see that kind of discipline in youngsters, but he already has those qualities. And I'm just going to quickly read out a quote from Bruno Genesio himself on uh, Desiree Due. He says, every time he comes on, he brings great energy and intensity. Of course, he has plenty to work on, but he's open to advice and is progressing well. So the great energy and intensity part is the key bit, because I think that really describes his his style of play on the pitch and what he does out of possession as well. Ren themselves are not an actively, I'd say, highly you know pressing team. So they really depend on their individuals to make things tick out of possession. And the way whenever he does play and whenever he does start games, really imposes himself on the opposition. So out of possession, you will see him actively trying to harass opposition defenders and opposition markers and trying to push the opposition team further back into their own half in an attempt to, of course, win the ball back and generate those transition opportunities and then finding those pockets of space behind the opposition back line to hopefully get goals on the counter. Now, to talk a little bit more about his own profile in possession, I think what he does offer a lot is he is really, really sharp on the ball. He is really aware of movements around him. So he is able to find teammates with little flicks in and around the box. And when he does find the ball in wide areas, he has these little short bursts of pace. He's not rapid on the ball, but what he does have is a really assured first touch which allows him to be an excellent carrier of the ball and usually a safe uh, safe progressor of the ball. And then when he does get uh, closer to the box, he more often than not makes the most makes the most valuable decision, I'd say, in terms of passing it to another teammate or you know, 
just leaving it on to another onrushing uh, fullback uh, alongside him. So all of those things really make him a very, very exciting player to watch. And what I'm particularly impressed with is his a with his age. You don't normally see the com- kind of composure uh, in the penalty box, but with the goals that he has scored, uh, I'm thinking about the goal he scored against Dinamo Kiev, the late goal to help uh, Ren win the game. Uh, the really, really excellent and composed finish inside the box, and. Like I said, more often than not, he makes the right decision. And for a young player like that, it's really, really impressive to see. And yeah, I think he takes a lot of boxes in terms of his movement even. He's a lovely move between the lines. He knows the right positions to take. He's quite disciplined in where he positions himself on the pitch. He doesn't necessarily always want to receive and doesn't want to hog the ball too much. So he's very... Uh, he's quite, like I said, very disciplined in his positioning, and I'd say manager's manager's dream even, in the in the kind of qualities he offers in uh, in possession and out of possession. So all in all, I'd say Desiree Duwe is one of the players to keep an eye on for the for the future, and uh, yeah, I I can't point out any specific weaknesses in his game just yet because of just how impressive he is as a rounded profile. I think. Maybe if I could say something uh, is that, you know, he doesn't have an X factor just yet, which is a little bit difficult to see in rounded players because of just how much they offer in other areas and how, um, I'd say, how well they distribute their qualities um, across attacking and defending. So he maybe doesn't have that X factor just yet, but I'm sure that will come with time. And even if it doesn't, I can easily, easily see him play, play for elite sides, uh, like I said, against uh, with uh, with Manchester City even, or with Bayern Munich, or, yeah, teams of that of that calibre, he is going straight to the top. Lovely stuff. Nanad, now, Alex, I know that you're a big fan of Desiree Do as well. Do you want to add a few words before we turn our attention to Wilson Odobert? Sure, I think Nanad did cover a lot then very, very well. Um, just to add on maybe to the X-Factor point, because I know it was something Nanad and I were actually discussing, and I think to be fair, at this point, we're really nitpicking for, you know, it's very representative or reflective of the the level that we think Dewey is when we speak about that X factor. I think it's just having that top, 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 you know, top five, top 10 quality in the world, which maybe he doesn't have yet, but he is what just turned 18 or so. So it is hard to, it is hard to kind of criticize him as a player. I think still maybe personally that there's still this judgment and I actually remember three of us did another pod where we spoke about Dewey before and for me there's still the same issue about sometimes I want him to to actually take the take the game to the opposition and try force something to happen where he still is maybe inclined to be a bit conservative as, at times um, but at the same time that is something the top managers in the world are looking at in players like him. If you look at Grealish, one of the big reasons Pep loves him so much is that he keeps the ball. He doesn't make mistakes. You know, he's a great dribbler, but he doesn't try to overplay. And I think that is something that is a huge part of Dewey's game. If if anything, he's he's just got that sort of profile where I can see him playing, you know, if you think about a, a 4-1, 4-1 sort of formation for those top sides, I can see him playing any of those four behind the striker, whether it be right wing, left wing, right centre mid, left centre mid. He has that sort of profile to be, yeah, just a top player in top possession sides, keep possession. I think another underrated quality of his is he's a top um, player being able to link zones and and knit together moves. And I think maybe 
yeah, where I see him is in terms of his ceiling is he could be a player for the sort of Bayern Munich cities where maybe he isn't the star player in that team, but he's the star support supporting attacker, almost the, the creative water carrier, but at a very elite level. Absolutely, yeah. Supreme talent, a prodigious talent is Desiree Dewey. Now, the fourth player we want to cover in this feature is Wilson Odober, who is, nominally speaking, a right winger at Trois, born 28th November 2004, so he's an 18-year-old. Nanad, what can you tell us about Odober's style of play and his potential? Yeah, so Wilson Odober, formerly of uh, PSG's academy, as are so many of Ligue 1's, uh youngsters these days, but uh, Odober himself, of course, playing for Troyes, um, nominally, uh, what very earlier used to be a uh, a striker, I believe, in PSG's youth setup. He's now more of a left-sided or right-sided forward, depending on where uh, he lines up in the starting eleven. So I, I guess to sort of talk a little bit about his profile generally, uh, what I would liken his profile most to, uh, being of a Manchester United inclination, is Jaden Sancho. I see a little bit of Jaden Sancho in him in the way that he imposes himself uh, on opposition defenders and the way he carries the ball and the way he is in and out of possession. So just to talk a little bit about his style of play, he is quite 1v1 happy. So whenever he does get the ball, he usually looks to take on defenders with uh, with dribbling past them instead of trying to overtake them with uh, direct pace because he doesn't have as much of a top-level speed. You think uh, maybe this is an extreme example, but you think a young Kylian Mbappe at Monaco, even he was quite rapid, but he doesn't quite level, have that same level of pace. Or even Usman Dembele, a young Usman Dembele at at, uh, at Rennes. So, Odebert, not necessarily the quickest, but he does have a good sort of short burst of pace that initially helps him to get past defenders in 1v1 duels. So he's quite happy to engage in that sense. He has a good variety of passes in his locker. And... What he does then bring around the around the penalty area is a sense of composure in his decision making. He usually like 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 Dewey, more often than not makes the right decision. He has good weight of pass uh, as well, so he doesn't necessarily strike the ball really strongly. He has a soft and a deft touch of the ball, and um, yeah, that I think that helps his decision making overall around the box. So that is one thing, but. Another thing I just, you know, when I'm sort of, while I was analyzing his sort of strengths in possession and out of possession, it's really difficult to remove the effects of Twa as a team on his on his profile because generally speaking, they have been quite terrible this season and look likely to go down, uh, judging by the way their performances and their season is going. Um so it's really difficult for me to sort of separate those two factors because I, in Odebear, I do see a player who can do better in in a more in a, in a, in a better environment. I'd say in a in an environment where he has higher quality players around him, and where he possibly is is surrounded by players that he can learn more from. So at the moment, I think a lot of a lot is expected of him at uh, at Twa, which is reflected in the in the long-term contract that he did end up signing earlier in this season, I believe. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think the effects of Twa as a team do really limit my my perspectives of 
what he has done so far. But what I can say is that his ceiling is definitely higher than most players in, in Twa's squad. And I can see him very easily make the step up to, say, a Monaco next or a Ren even. Or, you know, if any of those top-level league sides, you look at, maybe not Lons, but maybe one of those Ren, Lille even, if they lose Jonathan Bamba or Jonathan David, I could very easily see them going for someone like like Odebert and giving him the tools and the right environment and a coach that generally likes to work with younger players like Fonseca. I'm sure he would enjoy working with uh, someone like, like Odebert. Again, he has, I believe, what, three goals in uh, in Liga on this season and uh, has played the most minutes uh, as of today's uh, date of recording. And yeah, in terms of his underlying numbers, I think he's amongst his age age peers, he is up there alongside, you know, the more impressive players like Elias Pensagir, Due, we already spoke about, Zaya Emery, of course, and then Odebear. So those he belongs in that bracket of players in terms of his uh, output so far this season. And so he's done quite well for himself, I think, in that regard. Even even despite, you know, the uh, despite the fact that Twa themselves haven't had a great season, I think he has been a silver lining for, for Twa fans. And I think they'd like to keep him because I think the the club sees him or he sees the club as a as a as a project, hence signing the long-term contract. But you never know if if they do end up going down, maybe, maybe he ends up uh, going somewhere else and may, that could possibly serve him well. But yeah, overall, I'd say Odebear's ceiling is not maybe not quite world class. I don't know if I can say that just yet. Maybe we need to see him in a different light, in a different environment to see the best of him even. And what we are seeing right now is probably a limited version of what he can be uh, going forward. So yeah, that's uh, that's worth an Odebear for you. Yeah, lovely stuff, Nanad. I think Odebear is the type of player that I can easily see playing at the Stade Louis Du for Monaco on a sun-kissed Sunday midday kickoff against Rance or another such team. Yeah, uh, I couldn't have put it better, Ari. The final player that we wanted to cover is a certain Habib Diara, who, of course, plays for my beloved Strasbourg. He's a defensive midfielder born 3rd January 2004, so he's 19 years of age. Now, he is probably the most unknown of quantities, certainly when we take this list of five players that we've covered today, but he is a player who I think could go on perhaps to emulate Yusuf Fafana, who, of course, came to prominence at Strasbourg as a teenager before moving to Monaco and actually scored against Strasbourg last weekend, uh, much to my disgust. Anyway, Diara is only 19 years of age, but he has registered over a 1,000 minutes this season, starting on 11 occasions. He was called up to the France under-19 squad for their friendlies against Portugal and Finland last year, and he made it off the bench for both of those matches. He's also previously been capped for the under-18s and the under-16s, so quite familiar with the international setup. He principally plays as a holding midfielder, and one of the real hallmarks of his game is when he'll pick the ball up in and around the centre circle under pressure. He'll then swivel into space and he'll spray the most gorgeous diagonal pass to a teammate in space. Very elegant in that regard. More so at youth level as well. When you watch clips of him at youth level, we would see him arriving late, ghosting into the box unmarked to latch onto a cross. And I think as he becomes more confident, as he becomes more acclimatised to the senior game, we'll hopefully start to see that aspect of 
his game with the youth teams crop into his game with the first team. His underlying numbers do generally betray the fact that he is still very raw, but that's natural, I think, for a player so young. He's nevertheless in the 94th percentile for carries into the penalty area and the 98th percentile for progressive carries when compared with his positional peers across the top five leagues in Europe. I spoke to my friend Hervey, who has a season ticket at Strasbourg, just to yeah, get more of a feel from the fans on the ground, the fans who are watching him in the stadium week in, week out. And yeah, he was he was quite hopeful. He said it's it's difficult to have any real optimism this season at Strasbourg. It's been a quite miserable season, was what he said. But Diara's been, I suppose, a silver lining of sorts. He's Mael Dukuri as well, a player who we've not got the time to cover in this part of the podcast, but he's another exciting young player coming through at Strasbourg. So I think even if the club itself has had a poor season, even if there's a sense of melancholy, uh, if you like, with the fact that the Julian Stefan project ultimately ended in tears, shall we say, I think there is still reason for optimism and the likes of Happy Diara is a real driver for that optimism. Okay, we'll wrap up our analysis there. We've yeah, had a real deep dive into five players who have been afforded ample opportunities to feature in League and this season. It's one of the reasons that Alex Narad and I love League and packed with young talent, packed with coaches willing to give young players that opportunity to thrive and to develop. And so, yeah, hopefully uh, this part of the podcast has given you, the listener, a real insight into just some of those players flourishing in League and this season. Before we draw this episode to a close and then Adam going to give you the opportunity to once again promote the excellent Everybody's Eats podcast Very kind of you Ali, yeah listeners if you'd like to stick around for any extra league on chat feel free to jump over to uh, the Everybody's Eats podcast, we have a, a mailbag episode coming up in our next uh, next podcast um, in our next episode so do, do tune into that, we'll hopefully uh, give you a bit more insight on the current happenings in Liga and hopefully that's an informative listen for you on uh, the various themes surrounding from the title race down to the uh, battle against relegation at the bottom. So yeah, uh, you can find us at Everybody's Eats and you can generally find us on all the uh, usual podcast providers. So there you go. Brilliant, Nanad. We uh, actually lost Alex about... 80% 80% of the way through uh, this section, his laptop ran out of charge. But uh, yeah, I'll, in his absence, say thank you to Alex for his excellent insight. I'll say thank you as well to you, Nanad. It's a pleasure, as always, to chat to you. And yeah, we just echo what you're saying about the Everybody's Eats podcast. If you, the listener, have enjoyed listening to what Alex and Nanad have had to say over the last half an hour or so, if you enjoy what we do on the Road to Nowhere podcast when it comes to our league and coverage, then you will love what Alex and Nanad do over on the Everybody's Eats podcast. So do go and check it out, do subscribe, and do go and have a listen. Okay, on that note, I think I will say thank you as well to Rudy Barlow and Michael Jones. I'll say thank you to you, the listener. Until next time, goodbye. Mm-hmm.